Good evening and welcome to Nightline Africa. We are coming to you live from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America. Thanks for joining us. I'm Peter Clotty in Washington, D.C. Some analysts also expressed concern over the impact on African nations of international sanctions against Israel. Namibia calls for an international boycott of Israeli goods and companies. When it comes to uh, decisions whether uh, Dr. Chirima will be the torchbearer in 2025 and uh, MCP will give us uh, uh, a running mate, that issue really uh, is premature to start discussing that issue today. Malawi Congress Party endorses President Lazarus Chakwera as presidential candidate for next year's general election. To allow the losses to wear their traditional attire, the members to wear their traditional attire, but for the Ngoni, we get a suspension. Let us take her conscience. And a Zambian lawmaker plans to move a motion to amend the rules to allow the wearing of traditional clothes in parliament. Those stories and more coming up on Nightline Africa. Namibia called for an international boycott of Israeli goods and companies at an international court of justice hearing in The Hague on the legal consequences of Israeli policies and practices in the Palestinian territories. If implemented, such a boycott could affect the relationship between Namibia's diamond mining companies and their key partner and Namibia's economy. But the opposition has not won universal support. For VOE, Vitalio Angula reports from the Namibian capital, Vintok. Diamonds are Namibia's largest export earner, bringing in at least 10% of the country's gross domestic product. 2022 trade figures show Namibia exports $59 million worth of goods annually to Israel, mostly diamonds, and imports $3.8 million in goods from there, mainly diamond polishing equipment. An international boycott of Israeli goods and companies could therefore harm Namibia's diamond industry and economy. A Namibian businessman involved in the diamond trade who did not want to use his real name to speak candidly about the industry, questioned the efficacy of such sanctions. First, we have to prove that the private person has some form of connection to Israel. How you do that, I don't even know. And then even that connection it is established. Then you have to, again, does that business directly uh, a support or in any way affect uh, the support of IDF or that regime in order on what they're currently doing? I mean, where do you even start to find that type of co- connection? Some analysts also expressed concern over the impact on African nations of international sanctions against Israel. Benji Schulman, Director of Public Policy at the South African Zionist Federation, a pro-Israel umbrella organization, says African nations derive many benefits from trade with Israel. He says some of those benefits could be controlled by sanctions. Namibia was to follow this path that will only hurt Africans who stand to benefit from Israeli innovations in water, healthcare, agriculture, and technology. Political analyst Rachel Andreas said Namibia can rely on other buyers for its diamonds in the event of sanctions against Israel. I do not necessarily see Namibian diamonds not getting other buyers just because um, Israeli companies can no longer buy diamonds from Namibia. I think there's no country that has ever supported the issue of sanctions on another country and not considered its own um, national interests and counted the cost 
if that's a cost that Namibia should carry in order for Palestine uh, and its people to be free uh, for the for the war to end. Um, I can't even call it war because it's a one-sided attack for the carnage to end. Um, then so be it. Namibia is among 52 countries that sought a non-binding advisory opinion at the court on the legal consequences of Israeli policies and practices in the Palestinian territories, including East Jerusalem. Vitalio Angula for VOA News, Wintook, Namibia. In Malawi, the United Party for Transformation, or UTM, has sharply denied suggestions that the endorsement of President Lazarus Chakwera will end the Tonse Alliance. It comes after the Malawi Congress Party, or MCP, the alliance partner, endorsed the president as its candidate ahead of next year's general election. This, as local media reports, tensions between the UTM and the MCP. Analysts say the tensions and the endorsement without the input of the UTM could lead to an end to the alliance formed to defeat former President Arthur Peter Mutharika in the last elections. Felix Njawala is the spokesperson for the UTM. He tells me that the alliance partners will soon meet to resolve the challenges and make a decision on the best way forward before next year's vote. Well, um, whatever Malay Congress Party uh, did, you know, um, yesterday is um, about MCP. And as uh, UTM, we cannot comment on um, an endorsement of Dr. Jaguera because that one doesn't really concern our party, because these are two independent parties. So we can endorse whoever we want. They can also endorse whoever they want. You are in an alliance called the Tonsi Alliance, which allowed you or enabled you to win the election the last time. And people are saying with the MCP deciding to endorse President Chakwera for re-election, that effectively means the Tonse Alliance is over. From your party's perspective, is this true? Well, um, I think until we get uh, communication from Malai Congress Party, we will regard those assertions as uh, speculation. With this current political situation, does that mean that the UTM will also endorse Vice President Salos Chilima as your presidential candidate in next year's general election? Well, we, we will have a convention this year. And uh, when we hold the convention, um, several decisions will be made, and including that of um, uh, electing president of the party. So we, until that decision is made, uh, whatever we say now will be speculation. Because um, I, as a spokesperson for UTM, I don't have a mandate to disclose uh, what uh, the party is uh, uh, considering to do during the convention. But um, uh, when, until that decision is made, uh, then we can, we can come back and uh, discuss uh, you know, again on that issue. But when it comes to uh, decisions whether uh, Dr. Chirima will be the torchbearer in 2025 and uh, MCP will give us uh, uh, a running mate, uh, or MCP will give us a presidential candidate, uh, UTM will give, um, will provide a, a running mate, or whether the alliance will be there in 2025 or not. That issue really uh, is premature to start discussing that issue today, uh, in as far as UTM is concerned. And um, to answer whether a uh, decision that was made yesterday translates uh, into 
um, uh, fallout of the uh, of the alliance, I'm sure um, our colleagues in Malawi Congress Party would be in a good position to respond to that because that decision uh, really was made by um, our our colleagues in uh, Malawi Congress Party. But in, in as far as we are concerned, as the spokesman of the UTM, what is the status? of the UTM-MCP alliance at the moment? Because reports show that there appears to be tension between the MCP and the UTM alliance. Well, the, the alliance is still there. And um, yes, we have issues. We have problems. We have challenges that um, uh, must be, uh, you know, um, uh, worked on um, or rather resolved. And uh, But we cannot say that... Uh, the alliance is not there yet. The alliance is there because Malawians voted for for the alliance. And uh, until we go back to the public and um, tell them that uh, the alliance doesn't exist anymore, uh, alliance still uh, exists. So, to answer your question, yes, we have issues, and I think I've said this time and again uh, in our previous interview. I also highlighted uh, the same uh, to say that. Uh, um, we only met uh, probably in 2022. That was the last meeting that uh, we had as an alliance. Um, so um, we we we're still waiting for 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 the day and uh, the time when we will meet again as a, as an alliance, so that we can iron out some of the issues. And um, all that um, really is to make sure that uh, Malawians are benefiting from uh, from the leadership uh, of this country. Felix Njawala is the spokesperson for the United Transformation Movement, or UTM. He spoke with me from the Malawian capital, Ilongwe. This weekend on Issues in the News, are chances for a ceasefire in Gaza derailed following the deaths of hundreds of Palestinians waiting for aid delivery trucks? Alexei Navalny laid to rest as supporters vow to carry on his fight for a free Russia and a look at the myths that may be helping the Kremlin and hurting Kiev. Listen this weekend on VOA's Issues in the News. In Zambia, a member of parliament plans to move a motion to amend the rules to allow the wearing of traditional clothes in the legislature. Munir Zulu says it is about time for the country to embrace the wearing of traditional clothes in some public functions. His remarks follow a week's suspension for violating the legislature's dress code. Nelly Muti, the Speaker of Parliament, announced Zulu's suspension, citing a violation of the code. Critics say the lawmaker appears to thrive on controversy in an effort to stay relevant, an accusation he sharply denies. For more reaction on the suspension and plans to amend parliamentary rules to allow for wearing of traditional clothing during sessions, I reached parliamentarian Munir Zulu. So I'm not going to challenge her decision. The only thing I'm asking her to do is to stretch her conscience. Is what she's doing fair to allow the roses to wear their traditional attire, the members to wear their traditional attire, but for the Ngonians, we get a suspension. Let her stretch her conscience. But Munir, your critics are saying you thrive on creating attention in parliament for yourself and that instead of representing your people in parliament as you were voted for, you try to create sensation. And then when action is taken against your disregard of the rules of parliament, then you accuse people of hating you. Peter, I've only been in parliament for two years. 
probably people didn't know there was a constituency called Lumezi before I went into parliament. Let's agree that my critics are right. I bring controversy. How come the speaker moved herself to deliver a ruling on me without a point of order? I take responsibility that I'm the wrong one, but tell me which member of parliament rose to move the speaker to deliver a ruling. She moved herself. There was no point of order. No single MP from the ruling party rose to say, I'm dressed inappropriate. Because someone should move her and say, Madam Speaker, the honorable member is dress code. We are querying you. Then she should deliver a ruling. But Munir, Mr. Muzungu, who is uh, the senior media liaison officer in parliament, clarified that the speaker acted in accordance with parliamentary rules and procedures regarding the no. dress code. Did you pay co- particular attention to the dress code? All right. Muzungu has to wait under orders from the speaker. When my orders come from the people, that's the difference. So how you take Muzungu's statement is up to you. Your critics are saying, why wouldn't parliamentarian Muniri Zulu go ahead Mm. about his business in parliament by representing his people well, rather than courting controversy every time? Because last time you were nearly beaten by somebody else and you were arrested by police for some of these controversies. So your people are saying, why wouldn't Muniri Zulu do the job for which he was elected? First of all, Rarely am I given a chance to speak because I'm always factor. That's my biggest weakness because they want me to praise them and not be factual. So when I said I stick to facts, I'm always in conflict with those that are ruled in temporal power. I don't mind. For me, seven days and then what? Peter, I've one principle. I operate on a very simple principle. I love to provoke the law and not people. Because when you provoke the law, you come up with better pieces of legislation. What the speaker should have done, even after moving herself to deliver a ruling, he should have just said, okay, that's not part of our dress code, remove it. And then those who believe in that cultural dress code should also demand to say, can we just do away with traditional regalia so that we all wear the Western attire? We come up with a better rule or law for the dress code than segregation. Does that mean that Munir Zulu will move a motion in parliament to have traditional clothes incorporated as legitimate attire as part of the rules in parliament? Will that, will that be a motion you will move? I'm moving that motion as soon as I get back. It's non-negotiable. It's either everyone's traditional attire is removed, we maintain uh, Western suits, or no one wears uh, 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 for one side of the country. The problem some people make is when I provoke the law, they think I'm provoking them as individuals. I don't hold grudges. My business is to deal with the law, not people. Munir Zulu is a member of the Zambian parliament. He spoke with me from the capital, Lusaka. of Eswatini's rural communities lack cleaning drinking water, according to the charity WaterAid. And another 40% of these communities do not have access to water. Nokokanya Musi has the story from Mapungwani in the Lubombo region. 
Everyday Jabu Gametze makes a two-kilometer trek to Mkulubane River, the only water source near a home in Mapungwane in the Lubombo region of Eswatini. Although the water is contaminated and her route is dangerous, with risks of theft and sexual assault, she says she has no other choice. Gametze says that as the seasons grow hotter and drier, the water the residents rely on is becoming scarce. The well is starting to run dry and the community's future hangs in the balance. According to the United Nations, the annual mean temperatures in Eswatini have increased by more than 3 degrees Celsius between 1961 and 2000. These shifts have led to the decreased stream flows in primary river basins and heightened instances of waterborne diseases. Elkolos Lolo says that in addition to worrying about getting good grades at school, he has to worry about getting water every day. He says he often falls asleep in class. Melvin Lamini, a member of Mapungwane's Community Development Committee, says Mapungwane's children are sick and the water is unclean. Residents have no choice but to drink it, even though they know it will make them ill. International aid agencies such as Water Aid and World Vision International are working to address the water crisis in Eswatini by funding the construction of water filtering systems and new wells as well as improvements to sanitation facilities. The Italian aid agency Cooperation for the Development of Emerging Countries, or COSPE, is collaborating with the people of Mapungwane in the construction of a new water filtration system set to be unveiled soon. Erase their own issues, identify the problems affecting them uh, as a result of climate change, and they also come out with some proposed solutions on how they can adapt, uh, how they can address those issues. In 2023, the Eswatini government allocated funds to improve water supply schemes, which will benefit over 41,000 people. Nogukanya Musi, VOA News, Mapungwane. Charles Junta leader Mahmoud Idris Debi Itno said on Saturday he would stand in the May 6th presidential election just three days after his chief rival was killed in Meku circumstances. Debi Itno took power in 2021 after his father, veteran leader Idris Debi Itno, died while fighting rebels. The iron-fisted ruler had led the Sahel country for more than three decades. Debbie Itnu was proclaimed transitional president by the junta in 2021 and promised a return to civilian rule and elections within 18 months. But he subsequently extended the transition by two years and protests against the decision were brutally repressed by the security forces in October 2022. The date of the May presidential election was announced on Tuesday, barely two months before the vote. Debbie Itno, 39, is almost certain to win, given that his main challenger has been assassinated and the opposition has been muzzled and repressed. (music) 
Around 170 people were executed in attacks on three villages in northern Burkina Faso a week ago. A regional prosecutor said on Sunday as jihadist violence flares in the Junta-ruled country. On that same day, February 25th, separate attacks on a mosque in eastern Burkina and a Catholic church in the north left dozens more dead. Ali Benjamin Kulibali said he had received reports of the attacks on the villages of Kosilga, Nodin and Soroy in Yatenka province on February 25th with a provisional toll of around 170 people executed. The attacks left others wounded and caused material damage. The prosecutor for the northern town of Waiyagui added in a statement without apportioning blame to any group. He said his office ordered an investigation and appealed to the public for information. Survivors of the attacks told AFP that dozens of women and young children were among the victims. Local security sources said the attacks were separate from deadly incidents that happened on the same day at a mosque in the rural community of Natea Buani and a church in the village of Esekani. Authorities have yet to release an official death toll for those attacks, but a senior church official said at the time that at least 15 civilians were killed in that attack. The president of the Uganda Medical Association is expressing concern that over 2,000 physicians are unemployed. Dr. Herbert Luswata also says the lack of unemployment is making quality health care delivery difficult in the East African nation. This, after also expressing worry about what he says is the significant shortage of health care professionals, including doctors and nurses in government health facilities across the country. Luswata, however, praised a government decision to lift the suspension of recruitment of healthcare workers. For more information about calls to employ more professionals to improve healthcare, I reached Dr. Herbert Luswata in the Ugandan capital, Kampala. When COVID-19 was over in Uganda, we advocated and we requested government that they should not drop the health workers they had taken, they had uh, employed on contracts. They should instead find a budget and absorb them into the healthcare system so that they stay behind and provide care. The president of Uganda listened to this and actually gave a directive that every worker who was recruited to strengthen the healthcare system should remain. So when the president gave a directive that those ones who were deployed to work under contracts to work on COVID patients should stay, they were instead not retained. Even after some of them doing interviews and being validated, they were never put on the government payroll and up to now they are sitting at home. So when you combine those ones, uh, with the, the interns who have finished medical school and internship. That's how we came up with that big number of 2,000 health workers who are employed in Uganda. And it, the truth is that a few have moved to Southern Sudan, and we have also been trying to look for jobs for them elsewhere because this is one of the alternatives we came up with. If the Uganda Medical Association is looking for ways to absorb some of these health workers, including, you said, South Sudan and you know countries abroad, wouldn't that exacerbate or disturb the healthcare delivery system in Uganda? Uh, true, true. And uh, in the past two years, I- I'll tell you that we have been knowing about these health workers being around and no one thought about export or labor externalization. The challenge we got is that we, are, we had almost reached a limit when we were get, becoming tired 
in a situation whereby we had the doctors on the streets, very many wanting and looking for a job, and yet we have very few doctors in the hospital and the government facilities. So we had hospitals in gov government hospitals which lack human resource, and yet we have a lot of health workers on the streets who are not being utilized. They say we want to enter and work, but the government was not recruiting. They always kept saying we don't have enough money. At some point, some officials in government were even complaining that we are training too much doctors and they are tired of them because they don't have allowances to pay them. They don't have money to recruit them. And we are blaming universities for training them. So we are caught between the rocks. We need them in the government system. The government is not interested in recruiting them. They are languishing on the street. And as the leaders of doctors, we have to find solutions. The question some people are asking, Dr. Luswata, is that with private institutions in Uganda, private healthcare institutions in, in Uganda, can they expand and employ some of these workers? Uh, yes, yes. Actually, the public health facilities, the big ones, the hospitals, the medical centers, they have recruited. And actually, when you check with them, they have enough human resource. They have recruited doctors and they are working. The normal shifts, the eight hours. Most of the ones we know, they private facilities. So they also, they, they, they actually, I, I, they have been full because they, you know, they cannot also employ what they cannot use. They can only take what uh, they, they can employ. And our private sector is also not so big in Uganda, apart from the cities like Kampara and Gwira and Imbarara. But most of the parts, the regions of Uganda do not have big private health facilities which can absorb very many health workers. The biggest employer in Uganda is government when it comes to health. Are you therefore saying that the Medical uh, Association of Uganda thinks that the best way to employ those uh, health workers, including doctors and nurses, is to export them abroad? Now that the government has finally decided to open up and remove the ban on recruitment, uh, now at least at this moment, I, in my thinking, much as we had already initiated labor externalization, what is best right now? Let the government, let these positions be advertised and we have the doctors recruited. Because even as we speak right now, yes, the money has been revealed that it is there and it's for human resource, but we have not seen any advert. We have not recruited anyone. So that's why we are saying let them now advertise these positions, recruit the health workers in all the positions and fill them. If we have any surplus after this kind of recruitment with a money which is available, actually we are advocating, we are saying that they should even provide us some more money so that we recruit even at lower centers, the other centers it is. After we have got enough in our healthcare system, then the surplus can, be the, can move to, to other countries. If they can take all of them, then that is okay. We wouldn't have any problem with that. Dr. Herbert Luswada is the president of the Uganda Medical Association. He spoke with me from the Ugandan capital, Kampala. This is the Voice of America, and you are listening to Nightline Africa. I'm your host, Peter Clotty, in Washington. Coming up in the second half of Nightline Africa Sports with Samson O'Malley, and that will be followed by a commentary by Dr. James Jonah, former UN Undersecretary General for Political Affairs and Music from African Collection. But first. It's now time for Nightline Africa Sports, and for that, let's join Samson O'Malley. Hello, Samson. 
Hi Peter and good evening sports fans. Welcome to Nightline Africa Sports. Kenyan Benson Kipruto won the Tokyo Marathon in a race record of 2 hours, 2 minutes, 16 seconds on Sunday. Kipruto led a podium sweep for Kenya with Timothy Kiplagat taking the second spot in a time of 2 hours, 2 minutes, 55 seconds, while Vincent Kipkemoy Ngechuch came in third in a time of 2 hours, 4 minutes, 18 seconds. Elite Kipchoge, the two-time Olympic gold medalist, was 10th for his lowest finish in 20 career marathons. The women's race was also settled in a course record time as Situme Asefa Kibede of Ethiopia took the tape in 2 hours, 15 minutes, 55 seconds. Ugandan Rugby Union is sending seven players to South Africa for a high-performance training program. The training program will be conducted by the Blue Bulls Rugby Union at their base in Pretoria. The program is expected to be concluded mid-year in June, which means the players are likely to miss the ongoing Ugandan Championship, but they will be available for the Rugby Africa Cup. In football news, Tunisian side Osporons booked their place in the CAF Champions League quarterfinals after a hard-fought 1-0 home victory over Al-Hilal of Sudan on Saturday. A first-half goal from veteran defender Yasnin Meraya was enough to secure the three points for Osporons and still second sport in Group C behind Angola's Petro Atletico. Tanzanian giants Simba SC marched into the quarterfinals of the Champions League in style with a 6-0 thrashing of Germany Galaxy on Saturday evening. The Tanzanians marched into the knockout stages of the competition for a second time in a row and will be aiming at making stronger statement this season. The date for the draws for the last eight will be announced soon. And now to tennis, where Tunisian's Ons Jabour will be back on the tennis court next week at the Indian Wells Masters 1000 in the United States, scheduled for March 6th to the 17th. Jabour will know her first opponent at Indian Wells on Monday, following the draw for the third WTA 1000 tournament of the season. And finally, in basketball news, LeBron James became the first NBA player to reach 40,000 career regular season points on Saturday. The 39-year-old superstar scoring nine against defending champions Denver to achieve the milestone. But the historic effort came in a losing course as Nikola Djokic scored 35 points to rally the Nuggets late for a 124-114 victory over the Lakers, stretching their winning streak to six games. James, who just over a year ago overtook Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for the NBA's all-time scoring mark, is a four-time NBA champion and four-time NBA most valuable player, as well as the league's oldest active player, now in his 21st campaign. And that's it for this week's edition of Nightline Africa Sports. Back to you, Peter. Thanks a lot, Samson. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. We'll link up with you again next Sunday for another look at African sports. Nightline Africa Sports. And now let's take a closer look at Africa, the problems, the prospect in time of conflict, in time of peace. Here's one man's point of view with Dr. James Jonah, former UN Under Secretary General for Political Affairs. Hello, Dr. Jonah. Good evening, Africa. It has been assumed or reported that 2024 will see the largest number of elections that will be decisive. Of course, the focus was the presidential election in the Russian Republic and the presidential and congressional election in the United States. No one could have guessed that the most important 
election is that in South Africa. That election is being closely watched, mainly because South Africa took a step and called on the International Court of Justice to determine that Israel was guilty of genocide. There are some in the global north who are very angry with South Africa because they believe the government has the audacity to drag Israel before the courts. And for that reason, it has been discussed in South Africa. The government's statement previously that they have evidence there was going to be a major foreign intervention in the elections in South Africa. And the aim of that intervention is to ensure that the ANC is defeated and to enhance the electoral capacity of the Democratic Alliance, mainly a party that draws its support from the white minority. In the meantime, we have also noticed there is a splinter in the ANC because former President Zuma has decided to file a separate list relying mainly on the Zulu population and voters. We know now that the South African government perhaps trying to reduce the time for damage to the ANC has moved the election date to May, which means only three months left, believing that this would not give enough time to the anti-ANC to mobilize their forces. And there have also been many speculation in the South African press, in, even in some cases a certainty that the ANC for the first time will not be able to reach 50%. And that in such circumstances, the government or ANC will be compelled to enter into a coalition government. And what is interesting is that these speculations and pundits are saying the coalition will be with the Democratic Alliance and they have not mentioned the possibility of a coalition with Zuma faction or even Julius Malema party. And many of them said it is important that the coalition be between ANC and DA because this would result in a change in the foreign policy goals of the South African government. For those who have applauded the South African government from taking on the cause of the Palestinians and criticizing the way they were or have been conducted in Gaza, they have to pay attention because what you may see or even what you will see is large money transfer from abroad to meddle in the elections. So as the Americans say, follow the money. There is also the possibility, and one must watch for it, that some aspects of the playbook on regime change with its color revolution may be used. There is also the possibility that those who support the ANC will also try to counter this move. And make no mistake, the action of the government of South Africa before the International Court of Justice is extremely popular around the world.
And also, one must not forget that in recent elections, primary elections in Michigan, as well as the spectacular victory of George Galloway in the by election in Rochdale constituency in England, that it has now been demonstrated that support for the Palestinians and the right of self-determination and criticism of Israel for the way it is contesting the war, resulting, as we can say for today, more than 30,000 civilian deaths, and of which, according to the Pentagon, 20,000 deaths were women and children. Horrendous number, unprecedented in modern warfare. So this is why Africans and supporters of the government of South Africa should pay attention. I thank you. That was Waman's point of view, a commentary by Dr. James Jonah, former UN Undersecretary General for Political Affairs. And it's on Sunday on Nightline Africa. This is the time we get to reflect and relax. A flashback with music from our selection. Star. I 
Not in Vegas or a little bar. It's really not a difference if it's near or far. Listen, here we are. I need you. I've always wanted what was off limits. Staring at you till I'm caught in this. Back and forth like this is all tennis. I'm all jealous. You came with someone, but we can tell that there's changes coming. See, I can tell that you're a dangerous woman. That means you're speaking my language. Come on, now follow me. Let's go. Like Penelope and Blow. Well aware that stealing you is a felony. Yeah, I know. That's why they keep on telling me to let go. Yeah. But I need you and I can take you all the way and I'm able to give you something sensational. So let's go. Yeah. Said I need you and I can take you all the way and I'm able to follow me and I can make you. Vibes, you know, I can see myself being with you forever. Uh, that's, that's really beautiful. And I kind of dig you too, you know that. We, we're friends, and I'm in a situation. I, I'm in a relationship, and you know what that means. Well, whatever I gotta do, I'll do it for you. Should <laughs> put me in an awkward situation.
This is the first time I've ever been up here to receive anything. And I thank you so much. And it's not only shown that I'm an artist. Forget you, but the more that I 
our Sunday music spot. Hope you enjoy the music from Nightline Africa here at the English to Africa service of the Voice of America in Washington. (laughs) 
Nightline in Africa comes to you from the English to Africa service of the Voice of America. Hope you enjoy the program tonight. As you know, by now we are on air on Saturdays and Sundays at 16 and 18 hours UTC. From the Nightline Africa team, including producer Nicole Peters and engineer Justin Thwaite, we say big thank you for joining us. And remember, as the elders say, if you want to improve your memory, lend someone money. I'm your host, Peter Clotter in Washington. Good evening, Africa. <laughs> 